Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director of BCLT. And once again, we're here with Michael Smith. Um, as you know, if it's happening in Texas, Michael is the person that can tell you about it. Uh, but a few little things about Michael, because we haven't heard from him in a, in a couple of weeks. Michael is now, in addition to being an expert in Texas, uh, has a master's in World War II history. So uh, he can tell you not what happened in Texas and in World War II. And that may be a different podcast for us, though. In addition to that, Michael uh, and I got to spend some of the, the week together looking at the Berkeley-Stanford conference and looking at some of the, the top IP issues facing people around the country. Uh, Michael was a, a hit there. Everybody likes to know what's happening in Texas because it seems to be the talk of the town. So with all of that, we got a little catching up to do. Uh, Michael, you want to want to lead us through it? Uh, certainly, Wayne. Uh, it has been an interesting few weeks, both personally and professionally. There's been uh, a lot going on uh, in the courts. Uh, and, and I kind of wanted to start with everyone likes to talk about 101 patentable subject matter. And we were in the middle of a panel last week at the seminar that you and I were at, the, the Berkeley Stanford event. And we got some statistics on 101, but at the same time, we found out there were three new 101 cases out of the Eastern and Western districts of, uh, of Texas last week. So I wanted to start with one of those. And that was from the Eastern District of Texas. Back in October, a plaintiff terminal real, uh, reality uh, lost a jury trial in Marshall. Um, they were actually working out of my offices. So I was kind of hearing about what was going on in the case, but Sony got a, uh, uh, a jury verdict of no infringement, the claims were invalid, and the jury was also asked that 101 factual predicate question, and they found the well-understood question in the defendant's favor, and I think you and I have talked about what juries are doing on that question. And it, from my look at the cases, it seems like it's a, a tremendous defense, so it seems like a pretty, pretty common result. I think so. And I remember uh, when the panel was talking about it last week, I, I mentioned that I'm, we've seen that submitted several times in the Eastern District Courts, and I don't recall ever seeing a plaintiff win on that. Uh, juries always seem to find the activity well understood, and I can kind of understand that because after an expert's explained it, well, then they kind of understand it. So even though there's a little hindsight involved, uh, there may be a bias on a jury's part to find for the defendant on that question. But what happened here was uh, the plaintiff loses on infringement, they lose on invalidity, they lose on everything. And then the defendant comes in and they want the uh, finding that it's not patentable subject matter as well. And Judge Gilstrap's opinion said, well, we submitted Alice step two to the jury and the jury found that they were well understood. But my job is to look at Alice step one. And looking at Alice step one, I find that the asserted claims weren't directed to an abstract idea, and therefore they didn't claim patent and eligible subject matter. So the plaintiff lost everything in front of the jury, but they were able to salvage the patentable subject matter question before Judge Gilstrap. So again, that's, that's a situation where a defendant did better in front of a martial jury than they did with a court on this, this question. Well, there's the, the interesting issue about whether the the 101 issue in front of the jury basically taints everything else. What it was, uh, what Judge Davis used to refer to as the skunk in the jury box. Very, very possibly. 
very possibly. And that's not, and an, I keep having to tell people this, it's not an unusual result to have a jury go against you. If you're the plaintiff, if they go against you on infringement, they may go against you all the way down the road. I had a trial uh, in Marshall in April where we were able to do that. And so it's not an uncommon outcome. So it might be a way that you can kind of preload a favorable finding on 101. Um, so if I'm a plaintiff, I'm very cautious about uh, submitting, asking to submit that issue, because as you'll see, when we get down to the Judge Albright cases, uh, you might be better off with the court deciding that. Well, a, a little more Eastern District Texas practice. I, I saw some change in the rules that basically was taking the, the Eastern District back to the old days of, of Ward and Folsom on the, the Texarkana docket. So what's what's going on now? Right. There, there's a new general. Uh, the, the court puts out, as I think all courts do periodically, they put out case assignment orders saying, uh, for the X division, the cases are going to be split 50-50 between these judges or 60-40 or something like that. So there was a, just a housekeeping general order last week uh, that went back to the prior practice of the judges in Marshall Tex and Texarkana taking part of each other's docket. Um, I, for a few years, typically, uh, typically they do that. Uh, as you said, Judge Ward, Judge Folsom did that. Judge Gilstrap and Judge Schrader have done that. In the past couple of years, they've tended to keep 100% of their own divisions. Now they're going back to the old practice where they share it. So uh, now I have to go back to paying attention to case assignments after a case gets filed. Okay, did we, did we draw Judge, Judge Gilstrap? Did we draw Judge Schrader? And then uh, explain what the distinctions uh, on that would be to clients. It's usually not much. They have very similar procedures. Some of their procedures are actually identical on things like discovery and confidentiality. But it's something that we keep an eye on. Um, I didn't see, I need to go back and double check. I didn't see any changes in any of the other divisions. But now the only division in the district where one judge gets all the patent cases is in Beaumont, where our newest judge, uh, uh, Judge Truncali, gets 100% there. Uh, and that's kind of been the way, way it's been since he's been on. And judge Crone, the other judge there, she likes that just fine. So I don't think there are any complaints about that. I, I don't think he has very many cases, but this way, at least he's, he's geared up for them. Well, um, Northern District of Texas, much quieter these days, um, but we had a pretty strong ruling on the number of terms. Right, and, and I think we see these from judges periodically. Some courts have a rule, you can only have uh, 10 claim terms uh, construed uh, and then you come back if you need to have more than that. Well, this was an order along those lines from Judge Kincaid in Dallas, good Baylor lawyer judge. Um, judge Kincaid said, the parties have submitted 20 terms. I want you to meet and confer. And I suggest that you come back with 10 or fewer as a more reasonable number for the jury. And while you're at it, try to narrow your differences on those terms. And the reason I wanted to mention this is because this is another important reminder to you and to me and to lawyers who are working on these, we can always find something to fight over on claim terms. From the court's perspective, very few of these disputes are actually important in terms of resolving the case. There, there are very few disputes that you really actually need to look at. So they're trying to, to press parties to come up with fewer terms, get closer on the terms, don't just take no for an answer 
and say we're, we can't get anywhere. We've got 35 terms we want the court to construe. So I think we always need to remember it's very important to get the number of terms down. You save your client money if you do that, and you focus your attention on what the actual issues are going to be at trial. Well, moving out of the, the patent world, there was a, a trademark case that really was a, a, sh a showcase of 12B motions and maybe some, some silly pre-filing diligence. Um, though I hate to use that word, but it, this one seems silly. Well, this one, it, it dealt with a plaintiff uh, named Varsity that was objecting to a defendant called Varsity Tutors' use of the word Varsity standing alone in a V in connection with cheerleading camps which to me was, was a lot of fun because uh, my mother was very active going around the country doing cheerleading camps with somebody named Herky back in the 50s. So I kind of knew what they were talking about here, but this is a very uh, niche product. And the parties had worked out an agreement on what the defendant could say and what they couldn't say. And then the agreement broke down, uh, varsity files suit and varsity tutors comes in and files a bunch of 12, 12 B1 and 12B6 motions saying some of the plaintiffs haven't got standing. Uh, there's an issue about, it's a typical uh, twig ball issue. Uh, have you plausibly stated the claims? And there are two reasons why I thought this case was, was interesting. First is Judge Fitzwater is pointing out, if you're the plaintiff, you kind of need to know which of your entities owns the trademark at issue, who has standing to pursue the claim. Because when the defendant brought this up, the plaintiff didn't have an answer. They're like, well, we'll sort this out later. One of them owns it. We'll, we'll figure out which one. And he was like, no, you need to know which of yours owns this. And if you can't put on evidence that somebody owns it, then those particular entities need to go out on on certain claims. So we granted it on that. Now, the other thing I thought was interesting, though, was when you get down into when the parties are fighting over cases, they're citing all these cases to Judge Fitzwater. They're from district courts. I, I, I find I see in practice that a lot of people don't understand what citation to district courts is good for and what it's not good for. You can't cite a Northern District of, of Texas case to Judge Fitzwater and claim that it's binding precedent. But what he does here is give you a, a good illustration of what he does look at here. He says in one sentence, such and such case is a decision of another district court and not binding on his court. He doesn't even look at a case outside the Northern District. Then when it's other decisions of other judges on the court, um, he looks at, well, okay, uh, let me study those and see if those make sense. Because I do give, and I'm quoting here, serious and respectful consideration to the decisions of other judges of this court on questions of law and typically follows them because they are usually correct and because, per, because predictability in such matters is desirable, end quote. Well, that's helpful because it tells you what can I get out of this case? I've got a case from um, Judge Lynn down the hall. Okay, that, that's actually going to be worth something in front of this judge. If the case is from Judge Gilstrap over in the Eastern District, I probably don't need to worry about it. Well, so that, that's helpful in front of Judge Fitzwater. It also underscores that it's useful if you can figure out what the judge you're in front of, who he finds persuasive. And uh, one where I learned this was, a long time ago in front of Judge Ward, I had a, um, oh, it was an employment case and I could not find Fifth Circuit cases for what it was I was wanting 
the court to do. The only case I could find was from some new judge in Dallas named Lynn, something Lynn. So I apologized to him. And I said, the only case I've got is from the Northern District. And he looked at his career clerk, Chad Everingham, and looked back at me and said, well, what judge is it? And I said, um, Barbara Lynn. And he looked at Chad and smiled and looked back at me and said, well, in this court, that's as good as the Fifth Circuit. So from then on, if I could cite Judge Lynn, I use that. So you get to know after a while which judges to cite to which judges. And, and when I do that, a lot of times I'll put an additional parenthetical at the end, Prins, Lynn J, close Prins, so that the law clerk or the judge knows, ah, this is a Judge Lynn case, the Judge Gilstrap case. If I know that they they are that they have a friendship with that judge, that they've expressed a lot of respect for that judge's abilities, um, that's why we all go around down here. We cite Judge Bryson every chance we get because he's our favorite judge down here who doesn't live down here. So, so that's what I thought was helpful there. It's a good opinion, but it's also a good opinion on the tactical use of other district court opinions. So, so Michael, I got to tell you that my, one of the first briefs I wrote when I, when I worked there in Dallas, um, I cited, it was going to Dallas court, cited something out of Oklahoma federal court. And I remember the senior partner looking at it, he read through it and he's like, well, it's good law. It uh, seems right. And then he modified it. He's like, well, we understand this case was written uh, by a federal court in Oklahoma, we believe it's still worth considering for these reasons. Like, exactly. Exactly. It. You have to know if it's Texas OU weekend. You have to know if you're writing for a for a Texas law school judge. Uh, it, it's. Uh, but no, I, I highly uh, that that was a great approach. Um, it, we had a lot of fun cases in the last couple of weeks out of the Western District of Texas, and the most fun of all was actually a Federal Circuit case where the Federal Circuit once again uh, addressed a petition for mandamus, but this time it was by a Western District of Texas death row inmate. Apparently, this inmate had heard that the Federal Circuit likes reversing the Western District of Texas, so he filed a petition for writ of mandamus ordering the Western District of Texas to release him from death row and find that he hadn't done any of the things that he had been convicted of. Um, the Western, the uh, Federal Circuit said that's that's actually not our not our gig. So you need to go see a different court for that. But we all got a big kick out of that down here that we've apparently got inmates filing mandamus petitions with a Federal Circuit in the Western District. So you just have to close your eyes for a minute and think about the conversations that took place to get from patent mandamus to death row inmates and, and how that got into the prison system. That that's that's true. And I had one of the great experiences I had as a law clerk was I got to go hang out for a day at a medium security. I, I wasn't sentenced there. I want to be clear about that. Um, I got to hang out at a medium security prison in Texarkana because the um, uh, warden was a family friend of the judge I was clerking for. So the warden takes us through and we got to learn. I mean, at the time, the law clerks, we were working prisoner petitions for our judges. So I got to go through and kind of see the layout. And then I go into the law library and the librarian who's an inmate has a card catalog with all of the different causes of action that you could put in a petition as an inmate. And so, I mean, okay, you didn't, you didn't get this. You, okay. Okay. Use this one, put this into your stuff. So I wonder, I don't know if a lawyer's involved in this. I don't know how it got in, but once that argument gets into the database for for prisoners filing, 
I would be surprised if we don't see a, a significant number of people doing this because what have they got to lose? So I, th I think it's going to be interesting to see if we have more uh, death row inmate filings here um, uh, in the federal circuit simply because the word has gotten out that they reverse Western District judges, even though it's an, that's not exactly an accurate statement, it may be enough to justify a filing. Well, another another big development is we have uh, a magistrate in Waco now. We do, we do. We're uh, there is already one magistrate judge in in Waco, Judge Mansky, but the uh, uh, circuit authorized the court to to hire an additional magistrate judge to help handle all the patent cases that have been filed. And the judges have selected uh, a Eastern District practitioner, actually Derek Gilliland, as the new magistrate judge in, in Waco. Derek's a familiar face here and there. He went to Baylor. He taught at the law school when he got out. He practiced in Waco for several years. He came to uh, Dangerfield to work at the Knicks firm uh, about 15 years ago. So he's a familiar face around here. He's in our local uh, Aboda chapter. Uh, he is a tremendous, tremendous pick because he understands he's worked a large number of patent cases. He understands the issues. He understands the motivations. And he's familiar with the history of patent practice, beginning with what Eastern District judges do and now what Judge Albright does. How is it similar to the Eastern District? How is it different? Uh, if you have, I've had cases with Judge Albright where he's told the parties, okay, on this issue, go ahead and do discovery on that. And y'all just do it the way that East, do your disclosures as if you're in the Eastern District. And both sides knew what that meant. Judge Gilliland will be able to do the same thing if he thinks that's the way to go in a particular case. So, Michael, I, I've heard a lot of hand wringing uh, about this pick and a, and a lot of finger pointing saying, hey, this is just more proof that the Western District of Texas is a plaintiff's paradise because new magistrate has been almost exclusively plaintiff's side in patent cases over the last half decade, decade or so. Um, how do you respond to the people that are scared? Oh, I, I think it's probably correct. He's been uh, pretty exclusively on the, on the plaintiff's side. Um, that's not unusual here. Uh, because of conflicts, once you get on one side or the other, it's hard to move to the other side. So it doesn't surprise me at all. He has been very active on the, on the plaintiff side. It doesn't bother me for the same reason it didn't bother us when we got T. John Ward in 1999. My firm at the time specialized in vehicle product liability cases. Uh, we had been opposite Judge Ward in the Texas Instruments uh, uh, case that went to trial but we were thrilled to have him because his experience on the defense side meant that he understood the motivations of the parties and what needed to happen in order for things to proceed efficiently. He wasn't, we didn't think he was biased towards the defense side because that was the side he practiced on. That's just where he happened to practice. So what, what Derek's experience tells me is that he understands the issues that come up. He understands that games that are played on both sides and he'll be well-armed to respond to both of them, but I don't have any, any concern about him, whether I'm a plaintiff or a defendant. If I've got plaintiff's cases, I know he's going to know the questions to ask to know whether I actually have what I need to have. If I'm on the defense side, uh, I know he's going to hold plaintiff's feet to the fire on certain requirements, but I also know that he's going to be 
uh, asking, well, now, have you done this? Because he's seen the sorts of things that we do. Um, and, and I think that's going to be very helpful in practice. So I'm very encouraged by this appointment. And it doesn't matter to me whether I'm a defendant in his court or a plaintiff in his court. He's someone who speaks Texas patent litigation. He speaks Eastern District. Um, and he's familiar with the practice. And I think that's going to be good for everyone. I would not worry for, I would not lose any sleep at all over that he was on one side of the docket uh, or the other. That's, that's just the nature of the practice these days. He couldn't represent defendants with his uh, current cases, even if he wanted to. I think that's a, that's a great point people overlook. You don't get to just pick and choose with the way the conflict rules are set up. Once you pick a path, you're you're on it or once you pick a, a firm with other partners that are on that path you're locked up with their conflicts so that that's exactly it especially when it comes to representing defendants you you can't move easily move back over from the plaintiff side to the defense side because if you've still got any substantial practice and especially with the kinds of cases that he has it is a substantial practice and it's the kind of practice that keeps you from taking anything on the defense side but one thing i've noticed on the defense side is when I'm on that side, we're always happy to get people who have had plaintiff's cases because what I noticed when I've got plaintiff's cases and defense cases is I tend to do more on the plaintiff's cases. I pick up more experience there. I get more interaction with opposing counsel and with uh, the court there. And then when I move back to a defendant, I, I'm, 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 I think I can bring more to the table as a result of that. So I think that's one reason that, that Judge Albright wanted to pick him is he's somebody who he knows has been in the trenches. And also, as, as I know people have heard Judge Albright say, Derek and Judge Albright were co-counsel on a patent case a number of years ago, so he's already worked with him. Um, but, but no, I think people are going to be very, very happy with him, uh, and uh, he's bringing an awful lot to the table. So, Michael, one of the most important cases I think I've seen in a while um, come out of, of Judge Albright's court is this ruling against uh, a prevailing plaintiff for attorney's fees. And this just seems to be set up as a guide to future people uh, that are thinking about filing these types of motions. Oh, I think that's correct. It's an exceptional case request. It's from a plaintiff, plaintiff one a verdict of about $13 million from a Waco jury in his court in May. And then they asked for an exceptional case determination. We want two and a half million in fees, another half million in uh, uh, expert fees. Judge Albright goes down the analysis and he does the same thing that almost every other judge has done, which is say over and over again, just because you won doesn't make it an exceptional case. Uh, they didn't litigate the case in an unreasonable manner. I'm looking at what you've identified, and this is a garden variety uh, discovery dispute. The sorts of things that, that, and it's helpful when the court goes through and points this out, because I can then go back to my client and say, okay, the fact that they canceled the deposition is not enough. The fact that they dropped uh, claims on the eve of trial or dropped prior art defenses uh, on the eve of tr uh, trial, that's not enough. And in fact, and this is why judges like Judge Albright and Judge Gilstrap and soon to be Judge Gilliland are helpful because they've seen all these cases. You say, well, this is an exceptional case. And they're like, nope, this is what happens in every case. This is how every case is litigated. And the Supreme Court has told me it has to stand out. It has to be different. 
so uh, he goes through the defenses, he goes through the, the litigation positions and explains in some detail uh, what, um, why this is what normally happens. It's, it's not something that stands out. But, and, and I think it's helpful when judges do this as well, they then flip the table and say, you know what is exceptional in this case? What is exceptional is your arguments for an exceptional case, because these are common litigation practices. And although the judge doesn't say it in this order, and I don't know whether it's the case, often the judge is looking at the lawyers going, you try these cases, you know, these are ordinary disputes. In fact, the judge will know I've had you on numerous phone calls on discovery disputes. This is normal. So he points out that um, it's got to go beyond that. And you really ought to do better than this. You really shouldn't be filing motions simply because you, uh, you prevailed. There was also some uh, discussion of whether a finding of willfulness supported uh, recoverability of expert fees. And again, as you said, it's just a great opinion to go through and um, read and to show your client so that when they're all hot to try it on an exceptional case motion, you can tell them, okay, well, I'm happy to have you pay me tens of thousands of dollars to file this, but this judge understands what the analysis is. And if you put up our facts against this case, I don't know that you can get there. And I, and I really think in most cases, parties will not be able to. Well, and I would be concerned that Judge Albright just fired a shot across the bow that if he sees these motions coming coming in that are that weak, that you may be sanctioned for actually filing that motion. Yeah. He just doesn't want to see them. Yeah. The, 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 I think the plaintiff was a whole lot closer. And, and again, that fits into the universe of things. Individually, were these things sanctionable? Now, as a group, are they 285 exceptional case? And then... Well, when I come and ask for a 285, and this is all I've got, is that enough to get sanctioned? I'd be, a, I could see a sanctions or at least a fee, an order uh, requiring payment of fees for responding to a motion where you really couldn't have gotten there under the case law. But again, it's very helpful to all of us to have an order that says this so that I can kind of check my whole card and see, can I make a good faith argument that this is, is exceptional? Or is this something that this judge is going to recognize I fought over in every case? Well, Judge Albright also had a, a rather unusual opinion around a preliminary injunction in a patent case. And I, I haven't seen one before coming out of his court. So what's, what's going on here? Oh, no, absolutely. It, it, it took a lot of us by surprise because I remember the first time I saw a party ask for a preliminary injunction in joining the defendant's sale of the product at the beginning of the case. It was on a call with Judge Ward and Marshall, and, and Judge Ward said, well, I mean, I guess the sun could cut, come up in the West, uh, but that's about what it takes to get a preliminary injunction at the outset of a patent case. So you get this very interesting case where Judge Albright does grant a preliminary injunction in a case, but after I read it, I realized this is really the exception that shows the rule. This was a very fact-specific case. The plaintiff makes one product, and they make the product at a certain level of quality. The defendant is a company that makes a lot of different products, a lot of different, and they allegedly knocked off the plaintiff's product. They were selling a competing product that the plaintiff said it's much, much uh, cheaper manufacturer, but they sell it much cheaper 
And that's driven down the price in the marketplace because I'm competing with this cheap product and I have to either, there's price erosion uh, or I, I go out of business. And what they did here was the plaintiff factually supported all those things. I mean, we make those arguments all the time, but the plaintiff factually supported the argument that there was price erosion, what was different about the products and so forth. Then you get to the irreparable harm part of it. And Judge Albright looks at, well, there's, there is irreparable harm to the plaintiff. They will lose the market for their sole product if the defendant isn't enjoined. On the other side, the defendant sells a lot of products. And, and here's the kicker, the amount of money is at issue is very small. The bond was only $25,000. So the judge said, okay, I can protect the defendant against a finding that's improper with a $25,000 bond. So he found that there was, it was likely uh, that there was infringement. He found that the uh, uh, inequitable conduct factor, inequitable conduct, the irreparable harm factor weighed very heavily in favor of this. And when you bet, when you put in the bond, he said the bond is what tips it over. If the plaintiff posts this bond, then the defendant is protected. And now the plaintiff is protected as well. So it's a very unusual outcome but you have very unusual facts that justify it. So it was a very, very interesting case uh, to read. Well, and, and I'd go a step further. The, the plaintiff did really a, a, one of the best jobs I've seen of laying out the facts. It's a beautiful briefing on that front um, to get them there. And I think, but for that great briefing, this would have been another loser. Exactly. It would have been the plaintiff coming in saying, look, we've got a great case, uh, make the defendant take the product off the market. And, the, and, and in almost every case, you tell the client, you're, you're not going to get there. You can ask, but you're not going to get there. So this is going to be reported as without all the facts uh, behind it and all the color. And so people are going to say, oh, Judge Albright is now granting preliminary injunctions um, for for patent holders, everybody go, go file your preliminary injunction case. Absolutely. There is a definite risk of that because that's, what's going to get reported. The facts won't be. And for, for judges that have large dockets of patent cases, they're, they're all aware that when you make a ruling that is not the normal ruling, that there is a risk that everyone is going to come in and say, Oh, the judge, the judge is receptive to these arguments. And, and, I, and, and that could happen here. I don't think he is. I don't think he has done anything other than go right down the line here. Um, when you look at, he cites the federal circuit and the fifth circuit cases that say when irreparable harm is so high, I can drop the standard for uh, likelihood of success from substantial likelihood to just likelihood. I was a little surprised. I'd never seen that, but I checked the cases and he's right, both the fifth circuit and the federal circuit have given judges discretion to drop that factor when the other factor uh, is so strong. I do not think he is receptive to these, um, but there's probably a pretty good art, probably a pretty good likelihood that people are going to file the motions anyway. Either number one, because they mistakenly think he is sending a signal that I'm receptive to this, but number two, because as you said, the plaintiff did a really good factual job. And when I'm looking at my facts at the outside of a case, I now have a, a, a stake in the ground to aim for. Well, have I got these facts? Can I show price erosion? Can I show 
Am I in a situation where there's minimal harm to the defendant, but there's a lot of harm to me in a competitor case? Can I get there with that? So I think you will see people that have a good faith belief that I'm not doing this because I think he's more receptive. I'm doing it because I think I can, I've got facts to get there. Again, I don't think the standard is any more lenient, but because we get these rulings so rarely that grant it that you rarely can say, oh, oh, okay, maybe I could get it with those facts. So the way I think this is going to shake out in practice is when I'm representing a plaintiff that's a competitor at the beginning of the case, the normal conversation about an injunction takes about 30 seconds on the front end. Now I'm going to have to ask questions. Well, tell me about this. Tell me about this. Tell me about this. And then say, well, if we have these facts, it might be worth taking a run. But if this is a normal competitor versus competitor case and the benefit to us of taking the product off is counterbalanced by the harm to them and the product staying on and a bond can't fix that, um, then yeah, we ought to go back to the norm that we don't even file it. But it's, it's certainly gonna make life more interesting uh, talking about preliminary injunctions for a while. Well, uh, back to the, the old, old discussions, I think we have two new 101 cases out of Judge Albright. Anything we you know? We, we did. Our, our eagle-eyed moderator, Sarah Gusky, uh, told us about one of them uh, during the panel. I think it was last Thursday. Uh, she was talking about Judge Albright's rulings on 101 motions and said, look, well, my slide's already out of date because I was going to tell you he's denied 14 with half of those being on, on timing grounds. In other words, bring it up after claim construction. But on Monday at a pretrial conference, she told us that Judge uh, Albright granted a 101 motion during a pretrial conference immediately before trial. So the trial got canceled. So we have a, a ruling from him granting a 101 motion. To our knowledge, that's the first time he has granted one. We don't yet have a written ruling on it. So there's nothing I can talk about in terms of specifics yet but we do know that he has granted it in one case. And, and what makes that interesting is that at the same time she's telling me that on Thursday, I'm looking at an order that Judge Albright had just put out on Wednesday, a lengthy detailed order denying a 101 uh, motion uh, uh, in a case that was tried uh, back in uh, earlier in the year. And again, this, this is the mirror not the mirror image, it's the same motion that we started today talking about with Judge Gilstrap. Plaintiff gets poured out by a Waco jury, loses on infringement, loses on invalidity, loses on everything. The defendant comes in and says, okay, I want to take away their claims under patentable subject matter as well. Judge Albright goes through the same analysis that Judge Gilstrap goes through. He, ha he had not submitted step two to the jury but he found that both under step one and step two, the patent was not ineligible subject matter. But this is coming out, we now know 36 hours after he granted a motion at a pretrial conference, he is denying a motion finding that the patent passes muster under both prongs. So again, one, one thing that we've all been looking to in the last year or two is more written opinions from Judge Albright going through the analysis and explaining to us what it is that he sees that the analysis requires. So we have a good detailed 101 order by a judge that we know just went the other way two days earlier, explaining that this, these claims pass muster. 
We'll we'll look forward to seeing the the written decision when it comes out on on the earlier dis, uh, decision that he put out, at least the oral decision. So we'll have more to talk about next week. I suspect we will. I look forward to it. And thank you again, Michael. Okay. Thank you, Wayne. Have a good week.